Well, hi, everybody. Welcome. My name is Jason Cusick. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you're new with us here at Manhattan Beach or at our Torrance campus, hi to everybody at our Torrance campus. I want to say a special welcome to you. Also, if you're watching us online, thanks for being with us. We are in week three of a series that's called Get Ready. And the idea behind the series is it's based on the fact that when Jesus finished his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago, he said, I'm going to return one day. And his return was going to be marking kind of the end of history as we know it, as well as a a new connection with God um, and each other. Now, he didn't say when he was going to return, but he did say, here's some signs you can look for. There'll be wars. There'll be catastrophes. They'll be re- confusing religious teaching. Well, we, we have all that right now. So the question is, are we living in the end times? And if we are, how should we be living? Um, in week one of this series, we said that the study of the end times in theology is technically called eschatology. It comes from a Greek word, which means last things. And so what we're doing is we're saying, what does Jesus, what does the New Testament, what does this Bible say about the end times? And to answer some of the questions that we're asking, we're looking at two short letters in the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians. These letters in the New Testament were written by Paul, who was one of Christianity's first missionaries, written to people living in a Greek town called Thessalonica, and they had a lot of questions about Jesus' promise to return and the end times, and what should they expect, and what things might have already happened, and what might happen in the future. In the, the first message in the series, we looked at the first part of his letter, which talks about motivation. What should be our proper motivation? And we talked about moving from a place of fear to moving uh, to a place of, of, of hope and anticipation, and being motivated by God, and not by our own kind of more selfish personal motives. Last week, we talked about expecting challenge. Rather than expecting, oh, things are just going to get great from here, Paul in this letter says, oh, no, things are going to be challenging. They're challenging now. They're going to be challenging in the future. And and how can we face those challenges together? Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that you might not associate with the end of the world or Jesus's return. It's this topic, purity or in sexual purity in particular. Now, some of you might have some smaller kids uh, here today with you. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this in in the most general terms. I think there'll be something challenging for each one of us, but I do think we need to be talking about this topic of sexual purity with younger people earlier than most of us are comfortable with. And I would argue that we probably need to be talking about this topic with each other in ways that most of us might not be comfortable with. But the good news is talking about this kind of a topic is really no different than talking about any subject related to our urges and desires and appetites in other areas of life. Let me give you an example by just talking about food. Let me tell you a very negative story, a negative experience I had with my favorite cereal. Um, 
If you're new with us at Journey of Faith, we talk more about cereal than most churches that you'll be a part of. Um, I'm not usually the one talking about it. Pastor Alex, who is our Torrance campus pastor, is our cereal sommelier. Uh, But I'll share with you my story. Growing up, my go-to cereal uh, is Apple Jacks, Uh, that wonderful apple cinnamon flavor. Uh, While Apple Jacks boasts 17 grams of whole grains and five essential minerals and vitamins, Apple Jacks was the siren call that would pull this young sailor to an unfortunately disastrous breakfast every day. I remember one time in particular where I was at home all day. I finished a bowl of Apple Jacks, and instead of drinking that sweet apple cinnamon nectar milk at the bottom of the bowl, I decided to refill and put some more in there. And as I was eating, I realized that Apple Jacks was pleasing to the eye and good for food and would bring me wisdom. And I started continually eating bowl after bowl after bowl of Apple Jacks to the point at the end, I had finished an entire box of Apple Jacks in one sitting and then vomited the entire thing back up. And I remember after that event, I remember looking into that empty bowl, which was now filled with my regret. And I said, oh, Applejack, how I have sinned against you. I have misused you. That was not the intention. What does Applejacks have to do with the end times? And what does Applejacks have to do with sexual purity? We human beings, we all have appetites and urges and desires. We're all born with things we crave and long for and want to taste. But we also, as human beings, have a tendency to to not always align those appetites and desires and urges with the one who gave us those things. God, what God wants to do is God wants to be involved in the withholding as well as the expression of all of our appetites and hungers and urges and to help us discern the healthy way to live with those appetites. Here's the main idea for today. We should honor God with our embodied selves. We are created body and spirit, soul and spirit. And there's something about that unified self that God wants us to experience. God has a great plan for human sexuality, but wants us to invite him into that plan in the most personal ways in our life. Let's see what Paul says about this to the people living in the first century who had a lot of questions about Jesus' return in the end times, and we're going to see how they connect. Here's where we can find it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you want to look it up, definitely make a note of this and read this this week. We talked in message one about reading through the entire book of First and Second Thessalonians. That gives you a, a, a real good picture of the unity of this letter and how all the pieces come together. Here's what Paul says. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus 
to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. Great, great start to it. It's like, hey, we want to encourage you to live for God. And you know what? You're doing it. Keep it up. And here's some ways that you can kind of tweak that and begin working at, 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 at doing more of that. He says, you remember what we taught by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor. Not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. What's the connection between honoring God with our sexual selves and the coming of Jesus or the end of the world? Well, people living in Thessalonica, you can imagine, they were imagining that Jesus could show up at any moment. And this led them to two extremes. One of them is what we would call asceticism. Asceticism is when you go, man, I got to be super holy here. I got to just be focused on God. I'm not going to focus on, I'm going to stop eating because all I need is God. I'm going to stop washing my body because all I need is God. They had married people in that day that were like, you know, we're going to stop having intimacy in our marriage because I just want to be focused on Jesus. It's kind of an extreme, hyper-religious reaction. The other reaction is just the other way. We call it hedonism. That's like, hey, smoke them if you got them. You know, it's like, hey, the world's going to end. This thing's going to wrap up. How much time? Can I get on a flight to Amsterdam right now? You know? Those are the extremes. Paul is suggesting a third way, not moderation, because moderation implies a little bit of asceticism and a little bit of hedonism. He's suggesting a third way, and I want to suggest what this is. A good word for this is stewardship. Think of it like money. Someone gives you money and says, would you hold on to this for me in a responsible way until I return? Stewardship says God has entrusted to us our body and our spirit and our sexuality. And so how do we steward our sexuality in light of Jesus's return? This section of scripture, I want to suggest, shows us two ways. We should honor God with our embodied selves. Why? Here's the first way. Because honoring your bodies is God's will. I started reading the Bible for the first time when I was 19 years old. Never read it before. Started reading the Bible, and the first thing I wanted to know is, God, what is your will for my life? Been like that where you say, God, would you show me your will? We're usually like, tell me what your will is for my job, for my school, for relationships. Then I ran across this verse. God's will is for you to be holy. See, God's will for our lives starts with something very personal. Our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our sexuality. Now, if that word holiness throws you off, holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy means this, to be set apart. It means I'm going to live a life where I'm aimed at God. Not just going to church, reading the Bible, but my finances are going to be aimed at God. The kinds of things I say are going to be aimed at God. 
My feelings are going to be aimed at God. And my sexuality will be aimed at God. What does God want for me? When I start realizing that God has entrusted me with a beautiful gift of sexuality and that God wants to be involved in the expression and withholding of that sexuality, it's then that I'm able to take the next step. That's what Paul says. He says, then each of you will control his body and live in holiness and honor. I actually think this translation is a little bit clunky. In the original Greek, Paul says something a little bit more like this. Possess your vessel in an honoring way. He uses a, a, a metaphor, right? An image. It's a word picture. He's either saying acquire a wife or a spouse because that's an honoring way to express your sexuality. Or he's saying possess your vessel. That is exercise sexual self-control. Either way, he's using this word vessel. He's referring to something that is like a, a piece of art. Like a thing of beauty that's crafted and precious. Reminds me of, of this. I want to show you this picture. This is a, 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 a picture of a German uh, milk pitcher that has been on my mom's bookshelf in our living room for a long, long time. And I remember seeing this thing going, oh, okay, that's fine. Finally, at some point, I said, Mom, what is this thing? And she said, that is a, that is a gift that your grandfather, when he was fighting in World War II, found in Germany and thought of your grandmother. And it's a porcelain pitcher that he put in his duffel bag and got safely back to the United States and gave to his sweetheart. When I look at this, I think of this idea of my grandfather possessed this vessel with care and concern and delivered it safely to his sweetheart. In the first message, we talked about how the word eschatology means the end times. It's how we think about Jesus' return. In this way, sexuality is eschatological. What that means is sexuality is not just a way to honor God in the present. Our sexuality is a present that we re-gift back to Jesus when he returns. What would it look like for us to, to be thoughtful about possessing our vessel, to, to honor God through our sexuality? What would that look like for each one of us? If some of you are kind of glazed over and lost at what I'm talking about right now, let me just make it very simple, because Paul makes it very simple. Here's what he says. Stay away from all sexual sin. Just pretty basic about it. Now, in my mind, when I read stay away from all sexual sin, I go, like, what are you referring to? Can you be specific, please? Paul gives us one word. Here's the word. It's in Greek. It's porneia. That's where we get the word porn from. Porneia in ancient Greek culture referred to any sexual activity outside of a godly biblical marriage. And so it's an umbrella term that included everything. Now, I'm going to talk about some specifics of what Paul's talking about here. But 
what I'd rather do at this moment is say, what leads us to porneia? What causes us to slip into or fall into or be led into temptation and sexual sin? Let me give you four misbeliefs about sexuality that I have carried for years, and some of them you might carry. And these are misbeliefs that the closer I got to Jesus, the more I realized this isn't the right way to look at this. Here's the first one. Sex is sinful and bad. Some of you grew up in homes or in churches where that's what you learned. It's bad. You were told no, 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 until yes, right? Some of you grew up in what's called purity culture, where it was almost any desire was villainized. There's nothing wrong with desire. There's nothing wrong with attraction. God has made us with appetites and urges. Desire and even orientation are neutral. It's behavior. It's God wants us to be responsible for what we do, how we steward our desires. But sexuality and the gift of sexuality is good and and a beautiful gift from God. Now, some of us might have been taught that sexuality and desire and arousal and things are bad, but some of you also, if you experienced abuse, sexual abuse or sexual assault, that might have complicated your view of sexuality now because your God-given instinct to self-protect has now become merged with the good gift of God. So maybe your experience of sexuality as bad was negatively influenced by an assault that you experienced, or just the opposite. There are times where sexual assault leads a person to be aroused only by something that is bad, wrong, or immoral. That normal, healthy, godly sexuality is not a turn-on. The first misbelief is that our sexuality is sinful or bad. Here's the second one. It's just the opposite. If it feels good, I should do it. The first one's no, no, no. The second one's yes, yes, yes. It's very similar to the idea of, well, this is a natural feeling that I have, which means it must be from God. Therefore, God blesses it. But we don't follow that practice in any other area of our life. Sometimes we're like, oh, this person's offended me. I'm very upset. I want to punch them in the face. That must be from God. God must bless it, right? So we all have like natural desires. The goal is to kind of interact with at what point is my desire translating into a behavior and how is God perceiving that behavior? And then what do I do with that desire or that urge or that appetite? Paul, when he's writing Thessalonians, he's writing in the first century uh, Greek, uh, Greco-Roman culture, which was a hyper-sexualized culture. There's sexuality going on in all different kinds of expressions. But that also led to something called desensitization. Desensitization is when you say, gosh, I don't know if I should do this thing, and then you start doing that thing, and the more you do that thing, your conscience becomes numb to it, and you become desensitized to it. That's a spiritual principle we always need to be careful about. The more we do something that God says not to do, the more likely we are to sand down the sensitivity of our conscience. Here's misbelief number three. 
It's just my body. It's not me. Now, this is actually a leftover of Greco-Roman culture. This is actually more like Plato and Aristotle than it is Christianity. Because Christianity, in Christianity, we don't believe that the body is just a container for the spirit. Some of you hold that belief, and I want to challenge that today. Christianity holds a, a, a very unique position on the body. Here's what it would be called, embodiment. Here's what we mean by that. God created us body and spirit. And then we live our life relating to God and each other as body and spirit. And then when we die, there's this temporary break between body and spirit. The New Testament calls that the enemy. It's unnatural. But when Jesus returns, there's something called resurrection. And resurrection is a a mystical and beautiful and spiritual reunion of body and spirit again. We know this in the life of Jesus. Jesus was born into the world, spirit and body, lived, died for three days, was separated, and then three days after he died, he resurrected. What this means is God's plan for us is an intimate relationship between our own bodies and spirit. Now, what complicates this? Abuse complicates it. When we experience abuse, sometimes there's a disconnect that we might even disassociate from my body. That's my, my, that's my body. That's not really me. Trauma can do that. If we struggle with gender dysmorphia or gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria is when we feel a disconnect between our gender identity and our biological sex. Or body dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia is when we say, this is who I am, and yet there are parts of my body that don't feel like me. And these are times where we need to be more supportive and helpful to each other because there is a disconnection in this idea of embodiment. The idea is the closer we move to Jesus, the more we are striving to make peace with our bodies. And unfortunately for some of us, we live and have been fed, as it were, a narrative that you are at war with your body. Your body is a good gift from God. And we need to have a better theology of embodiment. Here's misbelief number four. You can't live a fulfilling life without sex. Our culture idolizes sex and coupling and marriage. In fact, in churches, one of the dirty secrets in churches is that churches talk so much about marriage and parenting and sex that people who are single often feel like second-class citizens. When in fact, singleness is a calling from God. There are two ways to live out your sexuality and your identity, and one of them is singleness, and one of them is marriage, and not everybody is called to either one. People are called to different ones. And I think this is a bigger issue that we need to talk about. We'll be talking about it next year more, but this is a bigger issue we need to talk about. Somewhere in church history, Christians forgot that we are following the teachings of a single celibate man who never had sex, never had kids, 
never got married, and he lived a rich and fulfilling life that actually impacted people for 2,000 years. Here's a question I have for you. Which of these misbeliefs about sexuality resonate with you? Maybe you were taught these, or maybe just caught them. My body's bad. I'm at war with my body. Sex is bad. Sex is great. God doesn't care anything about my sexuality. For some of you, you're like, this is the first time I've ever really thought that God actually has a take on how I live sexually. Some of you, and I would argue a lot of us, have a conflicted relationship with our appetites and desires and urges and what God is calling us to. I believe almost every one of us does. What do we do with that? And how does that resonate with you? I would suggest the step that we need to take is become a better spiritual community where these topics can be talked about as part of what it means to live as embodied people. If we're going to talk about health, if we're going to talk about food, if we're going to talk about money, if we're going to talk about mission, if we're going to talk about caring for the poor, if we're going to talk about worship, then we should be talking also about how do we steward our sexuality? Because it is such an important part of each one of us. And this is something that we actually can do together. In fact, that's how Paul finishes his section. He says, never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges such sins. There's probably a better way to say this. Here's what I think the better way is saying it. No one should take advantage of a spiritual brother or sister. Here's, here's what he's saying. He's kind of saying that that the he's moving the conversation from sexuality is about me and God to sexuality is about me and the other person and God. He adds on this part. We just saw it here a second ago. We don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other for God himself has taught you to love one another. What he's saying is there is this triangulated relationship that God intends for our relationships with each other. There's me, there's everyone else, and then there's God. I have a relationship with God, they have a relationship with God, and then we have a relationship with others. When it comes to our sexuality, this even influences the idea of consent. Because we're really big right now on clarifying consent. Sexuality should always be consensual. And what we mean by that is, I give consent that we're going to do this. Do you give consent that we are going to do this? Yes. What's missing? Does God give consent that we are going to do this? That's the proper holding and expressing of our sexual selves within a community. And what Paul says here is don't take advantage of when he literally says don't exploit the idea is if I am engaging my sexuality in a way with another person, even with their full consent, and I haven't invited God into that consensual process, then I am potentially exploiting a spiritual brother or sister. It says, don't do that. We're, we're better than that. As a community of spiritual people, as a community of people with embodied selves, we're better than that. We should 
honor God with our embodied selves. First, because honoring God is uh, honoring God with our bodies is God's will. Here's the second reason. Because honoring God with our sexuality is the best way to love each other. Let me give you, let me kind of close by giving you a big picture of what I'm even talking about when it comes to sexuality. I would like to describe to you what we would call a, a historical or a historic Christian sexual ethic. Generally speaking, here is what Christians of all different ethnic backgrounds, all different countries, languages, and experiences, generally speaking, here is the sexual ethic that Christians have held to for 2,000 years. And as I list this, I want, I, I'm going to try to be just as, as clear as I can in generalities, but as I list this, I want you to think, gosh, do I fit in there? Do, am I... Am I Checking the boxes. Is this, does this represent me? Do I fit cleanly in a historically Christian sexual ethic? In singleness, sexuality looks like practicing God-honoring singleness and striving for sexual purity, not just physically, but in the mind as well. If you're single or you were single, did you not only experience sexual purity physically, but also mentally? Married, it's one man and one woman marked by sexual difference. It's refraining from lustful thinking in the marriage. It's no sex before marriage. Some of you are losing it now. You're kind of like, well, I was with you for a second. Now, I'm, now I'm, I think I'm off the list. Um, you only marry someone of your own faith. You avoid adultery in body and mind, right? So some of you are like, well, I got the, my, I haven't physically committed adultery, but I guess in my mind, right? Okay, so if, if that hasn't eliminated everyone, let me, let me go one more time. Don't desire another person's spouse. Check. Some of you are like, I'm out. Um, no divorce. You have a marriage that is based on equality and mutual submission, some of you are out at that point. And then the last one, you only express or withhold sex by mutual consent. I think that knocks out all the rest of y'all married people. So let's draw a circle around all of us that fit cleanly and nicely within the historic Christian sexual ethic. I tried to make it a little bit smaller, but I wanted you to see. Here's the circle. Some of us have fallen out of that circle from temptation. Some of us were pushed out of that circle through abuse. Some of us vacation out of that circle in Las Vegas, or, you know, and then we come back into the circle later. Um, some of us have never really cleanly been in what the Bible says about sexuality. There's probably one person in the circle that stayed in the circle, and that's Jesus. So if Jesus is that center circle, let's draw a circle about for the rest of us. Notice it's not different circles. Well, you're in this area over here, and then there's a circle over here for those people that deal with that issue. And then there's another circle over here for the really, really sinful stuff. Um, and then mine's not that bad. No, we're all in here. 
And some of us are really close to Jesus in our mind, but not with our body. Some people are very close to Jesus with their body, but not in their mind. What would it be like for us as a church if we created a community where not only did we recognize that we're all in this big circle, but we said, hey, what would it be like if we could keep encouraging each other to move closer to Jesus? What would that take? There's, there's one person in that circle, and that's Jesus, and then there's the rest of us. And the rest of us would be called a community, or maybe a culture, because this looks like a Petri dish all of a sudden. It's kind of gross. Uh, but what would it look like if we could move? What would we need to do to say it's not us and them, it's not me and those people, it's all of us and Jesus? How could we lock arms together and move in that direction? That's a question I have for you. How could we uh, do better with each other to move toward Jesus with our sexuality? Maybe it means we need to stop ranking stuff in categories. Like that's the bad stuff, and then my stuff isn't that bad. Maybe it means we need to be a little bit more honest about what we're dealing with. Maybe it means accepting that maybe all of us have areas of brokenness when it comes to sexuality. Or at least we have some conflict between how we relate to ourselves and what God has for us. Maybe instead of villainizing desire or appetite, we recognize, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. How could I get together with some other people and help discern what God wants me to do with what I'm experiencing? And maybe it means we start having some of those conversations and saying some of those things with trusted people. I spoke with a guy a few weeks ago, and he leads a, a men's group. And I said, tell me about your men's group. And he said, you know, we, 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 we deal with all kinds of stuff. We talk about everything men talk about. I said, really? When's the last time you talked about, like, lust and porn? He was like, well, we talk... We talk about a lot, a lot of different stuff. And I was like, oh, so you guys haven't... And I said, how long have you been meeting? He's like, 14 years. 14 years and you haven't talked about that. Ladies, if you have a relationship with some other godly women, you need to be talking about this stuff in your life. Men, you need to be talking about it in your relationships. It might not be a big group thing. It might be more one-on-one -on -one or a smaller group. And I'll tell you, for me, when I hit 12 years old, I entered into a profoundly complicated relationship with my own self. Conflicted by my own desires and my own appetites. I didn't feel like I had anybody that I could talk to. And for two decades, I struggled in silence. With lust, with explicit material, and, and, and with my own identity. Trying to even understand, where is God in this? You know what changed? This church. I met a small group of men that I'm still connected with decades later. We know everything about each other. We talk about struggle. 
We talk about temptation. We encourage it. We call each other on the phone late at night. When I travel out of town, these guys are calling me saying, how's it going? We're trying to lock arms with each other. If we really want to experience wholeness and integrity and pursue purity like God wants us to, we need to step it up. Now, I know the other thing about pursuing purity is the the biggest thing is we need to be a safe place for that to happen. Because that's the biggest barrier. And churches are notoriously unsafe when we talk about stuff like this. You bring something up and then suddenly you're a pariah. Nobody wants to talk to you anymore. Or you bring it up and they go, well, I don't struggle with that. My gosh. We've got to do better at this. Our souls, our lives, and for some of us in our community, our, our, our actual life. There are people in our community that are wrestling with sexuality and identity, and the suicidality is through the roof. When Jesus encountered people that were living differently in their sexuality than he was, he welcomed them. He didn't judge them. But he said, come, follow me. Sometimes he said, come and sin no more. We need to be the kind of spiritual community where we say it is safe to be yourself and then we want to be a place where we can say, now, let's all start walking toward Jesus and let's become more of who Jesus has called us to be and we can do that together. Can we do that together? Let's do better at that. And that means we all got to take a look at ourselves and realize some of the barriers we have to work through to do that. Let me pray for us and for our ability to do that. Would you all stand? We're going to close our, our service today um, at Torrance too. Hey, thanks so much for letting me talk through that, some of the stuff. I know there's some stuff that was in there was like, I don't even know what you're talking about really. Some other stuff you're like, okay, let's get on this. Um, if you'd like prayer about something, if you want to know a next step, if you want to connect with somebody to begin talking through some of this stuff, or if you're a parent and you're looking for some great resources um, because you're starting to have these conversations with your kids, our family ministries has some great stuff. We actually did a seminar on this um, in the summer. We'd love to help equip you and develop you. But let's, let's do better at this together because uh, God's calling us to do that. And, and it's our opportunity to present our sexuality to Jesus when he returns. And this is a good opportunity for us to help each other do that. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, thank you so much for your love and grace in our lives. Thank you that you love us. You don't reject us. Although we've been rejected by others, you don't reject us. And thank you that you have an even greater plan for our our sexuality and for intimacy. You have a greater plan than we have for ourselves. We want to discover that. Help us to discover it together. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everybody. Thanks for joining us today.